From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. If there's one thing we keep coming back to in these discussions, it's that the industry is changing. The world of interior design and home goods won't look the same in five years as it does today. If you want to stay in front of these changes, there's no better way than the Business of Home newsletter. Delivered every morning, you can start your day with the news that matters most. Subscribe free of charge at www.businessofhome.com newsletter. That's businessofhome.com newsletter. And now, on with the show. If there's anyone who fits the model of a great mentor, it's British interior designer Nina Campbell. Shaped by her apprenticeship at the renowned firm of Sybil Colfax and John Fowler, Campbell has gone on to create a nearly five decades long career in design, establishing a star studded client list featuring the likes of Rod Stewart, Ringo Starr, and the Duke and Duchess of York. I sat down with the interior designer at Dakota's Winter Market last week to draw insights from her inspiring career and to get her take on how the industry has evolved. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience. Nina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dennis. Delighted to be here. Nina, you once described John Fowler as the kind of man that you can learn something from just by shaking his hand. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the the 19-year-old Nina Campbell arriving to work for the iconic firm of of Colfax and Fowler and what that was like and and what you learned from that experience. Well, first of all, I dressed up my CV, as you can imagine. In fact, I don't think he knew what a CV was. (laughs) And um, so I said I'd done secretarial school and I said I'd done architectural school and I also said I'd done interior design school with one of his competitors, I suppose. So the first thing he said to me was, dear child, please forget everything you learned from Michael Inchbald. <laughs> so I very brightly said, oh, don't worry, Mr. Fowler, I didn't learn anything anyway. So That's from that moment on... Brilliant we response. On, <laughs> we got on very well. And um, he didn't know how to dictate letters to a secretary. And I didn't know how to take it down. So that went well too because it took me a week to translate the letter back by which time I don't know what had happened. The the event was over anyway. And then he asked me to make the tea which I did monumentally badly because I'd never made tea before at home. Oh dear. There was pre-tea bag. You know it was in the days with a spoonful of tea. So I put one for each person. There were 18 people in the Oh dear. dear. And I thought it was terribly strong tea. (laughs) It was very strong tea. Well it wasn't very strong because nobody told me about seeping it or steeping it. So I poured it out, filled it with milk carried it to him and he said what is this milk soup oh no so I explained what I'd done and he said please never make tea again so I rose up the ladder rather rapidly because he didn't know (laughs) luckily he didn't know how to sack me so he just put me in another department and I became a bag carrier instead which was fabulous well, now, we, we should tell people, at, at home, you weren't being tasked with, with making tea, were you? No. No. You, you had people to, to take care of that yeah, for you. Yeah, in those right? days, it was so long yes. ago that you didn't have much. We were still rationed, or almost rationed, but we had lots of people to help in the house. Right. Various people who were tidying up and making tea, I presume. They were making tea, making the beds, sweeping this, everything. It was really, when I think back to my life, I wonder why I'm not still four years old, because it was much more comfortable. <laughs> 
Well, now you say it was much more comfortable, but but all joking aside, I mean, you were born just after the end of, of World War II, yeah. right? Uh, literally, I think the next, the next, the next day. day yeah. It was a huge celebration. Nina thought it was all for her being born. Um, <laughs> It turns out that it was also the end of the war, but you grew up at a time of rationing and limited supplies of things. I mean, tell us a well, little bit about that. Lots of things were limited. I mean, first of all, chocolate was limited. But I luckily had a grandmother in America who used to send Hershey bars, which oh, I goodness. thought were delicious until I grew up and had had other chocolates and then <laughs> came to America and bought one and realized that maybe it wasn't quite the top of the range. But Sorry, Hershey's. <laughs> poor Hershey's. Anyway, uh, what, what was also rationed was fabrics. So my mother, who was very clever, bought a bolt of what was called silk noil. It's a sort of rough fabric. And she had it dyed saffron yellow and made the curtains for our drawing room out of that fabric. And in those days, when you moved house, it was very bad for the trade because you just took your curtains with you and somebody shortened them or lengthened them or something. And she bought art felt, which made the carpets on the stairs. And I was telling Dennis earlier... We luckily had these two lovely men in the house who swept that carpet. You didn't have a hoover. They were swept with a stiff brush. As a result, everything lasted forever. So the whole thing was so different. Nice to have carpet sweepers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But human ones, not those things. Yes. Eubanks or whatever they exactly. were called. So I remember being taken as a child. My mother loved to decorate to the Coles wallpaper shop in mm. Mortimer Street. Yes. That was the only place you could get wallpaper. I think they were the only company making wallpaper. And then there was Sanderson, who made fabric. So there were two or three places to go. You didn't have the choice you have now. Right. There sort of weren't the, the, the vast supply yeah. of, of yeah. trade showrooms like we have here today. And, and when I worked for Colfax and Fowler, we used to go down to the depths of the city of London. And in order to have trimmings made, you went up a rickety old staircase where there was some very old, what I thought, I was 19, I thought anyone of 30 was old, but I mean, there were these old people treadling on machines to make these exquisite fringes and borders and all the things that Mr. Fowler would ask for, like white trellis and I want a band of blue and a band of coral. And you went and watched that being made on a machine and literally they pedaled away with their feet on this wooden <laughs> thing and they pushed the shuttle back and forth. And there wasn't Samuels, there wasn't... Colfax and Fowler hadn't even started doing their own trimmings. So everything was bespoke, but nobody made a big deal about it. That was just the only thing you could do. This was sort of all bespoke at the time, essentially. Yeah. Right. And, and so describe for us, I mean, for those that don't know, I mean, Colfax and Fowler, it, it, an iconic design firm. And tell us a little about who your clientele was at the, at the time. And well, Colfax and Fowler did all the really uh, stately homes, as they were called, in England. And John Fowler was absolutely a master at saving what there was. You know, if there was a pair of curtains that were falling to pieces at the edges, he would just take an eight-inch border of maybe a velvet and dye it and have it stitched to the edges so that the leading edge and base, everything was done, so that that fabric would extend for another 20 years of life because nobody threw anything away. You went up into attics of these houses and found furniture Chippendale chairs that maybe had a leg off because nobody had sort of cared particularly and they were restored and repaired and brought down and, and I did a house called Ragley Hall which was again the, the same John Fowler where, this is when I'd gone on my own John Fowler did the state rooms meaning the, the, the very grand rooms on the ground floor and I did all the bedrooms and family rooms upstairs and again we toured the attic and restored and there was something rather wonderful about it because you didn't have nobody went to furniture shops and it was considered rather bad taste if you had to buy furniture. That was sort of, meant you were ready. Oh. 
<laughs> hadn't quite arrived. Well, so, and, so tell me about that, because we, we were talking earlier, you and I, about the fact that people weren't just going out and buying all new furniture and, and, and weren't redecorating from, from floor to ceiling, that they were hopefully keeping a lot of what they had, but maybe you were reupholstering or it refurbishing. Was all, it was all really reupholstering. Young couples used to do the house up, maybe, and then they came to you later on to do the drawing room because they'd, they had a, a nursery, they had a sitting room, maybe, but the drawing room was kept for later, the dining room. They didn't think they needed to spend the money until later. But on the whole, they had furniture. Their parents had furniture. I don't know how many of you have tried to give your children furniture, and nowadays they just say... Right, you see, they all don't want it, right? They don't want it. they don't want it. So you've been paying storage for 20 years, which has cost more than the thing cost in the first place. And now they don't want it, because they want to go out and buy their own. Yes. Are your your children that way? Well, my daughter's just got a second home, and she was quite grateful to come down to the store and gather up. But she's different, because she understands. Right, she has an appreciation. Yeah. Right. And a strong mother. So, (laughs) yes, very... So you, you stayed at Colfax and Fowler for a few years, d- despite the, the terrible tea-making and, and everything else. And then what made you decide that you were ready to go out on your own? Well, I was already, I'd, I'd met Mark Burley, who had this wonderful nightclub called Annabelle's. And I had in, sort of stuck my toe in the door and told him that there were one or two things there that I felt that should be changed. And somehow, I think he was quite intrigued by this sort of young girl that thought she knew better than him. And so he said, well, why don't you do it yourself? So I then stuck my foot in the door, shoved my elbows and got in there and started becoming the in-house designer for Annabelle's. So that meant that possibly I could pay some of the rent, I suppose. And the other thing was I had other friends that I'd been passed on to with wonderful. I mean, there was a marvelous house in Shropshire, which had beautiful things. And the owner was a cousin of my stepfather and she decided to give me a chance to do it up. So I had, and then there was a castle in Scotland belonging to friends that needed a lot of doing. So I did have quite a lot of things to do. Right, so you had, you had these various projects. We, we should explain for people that might not be familiar with Annabelle's. Annabelle's was a, uh, an extraordinary club that sort of the closest American equivalent, I guess, would be Studio 54, sort of in its, oh, and doubles, in its really. yeah. and doubles, right? So very chic crowd, lots of, lots of Hollywood celebs, lots of royals, and you were, I think, 20 years old yeah. when you marched in and said that you knew a better way to design the space than what it was. And, and you really, that was a project that was ongoing for you for, for yes, years. it went right? on I mean, for it because constantly. every, I think the reason it was so, it was so good was that it was, it was not done and then left. It was closed for a month for cleaning, for redoing. So it was always fresh and it was always kind of up to date. And I think that was a, a difference. And also at the beginning, it was just kind of friends of friends. So it was very much, it was like just going home, really, in a way. It was just so comfortable. And it wasn't glitzy or flashy. And as a result, it was very private. So if any member of the royal family came, there was no paparazzi. Nobody would take a photograph of them coming out. You know, it was all completely private, really, and looked yes, after. Yes, and, and it sort of was a place that people could have affairs and oh, right. not have to worry about, yeah. right, being found out, and so, I mean, it was, you really did a service for a lot of people, we should point yes. out, I mean, <laughs> yes. Well, there were many engagements and many affairs, as you can say. Of course, if you were having an affair, it wasn't the place to go, because all your friends were there, too, so it would have been pretty obvious, but um, certainly marriages and things like that took place. Yes, well... Uh, it, it and the Supremes sang there one night and things like that. And um, 
and it was amazing. Well, and, and, and sadly, it, it, it closed and, and just recently, end of last year, right? The, the, yeah. the, the contents of Annabelle's went, went under the gavel at Christie's mm -hmm. at, at auction, right? right? Yeah. So sort of an end of, a, of, of an era there. Well, an end of an era, and a new Annabelle's has opened up, owned by somebody new, two doors down. So it's a, it's a new adventure, and the old Annabelle's is, is over. Right. So Annabelle's was sort of an ongoing client. You had some other clients. You, you opened your own firm. And, uh, and, and sort of how did things progress? In the beginning, you were mostly working in, in England and Scotland. and Yes? And tell me, tell me how clients were coming to you. I didn't really know how they came. It was rather a miracle, really. But um, they sort of came, I suppose it was word of mouth. There was certain advertising. I did a, a restaurant called the Belfry Club in and that was in interiors, and magazines were publishing me, House and Garden was publishing me a lot. And, um, and then people, I remember going to the south of France, some woman asked me to go and see her and her lovely house there, and she, she said, you'll recognize me because I'm holding a copy of, of House and Garden with your house on the cover, uh, which was rather nice. And then I started going, traveling much more, and people were buying more and more homes. So it wasn't like moving house, it was buying another house, and that's really where the whole thing sort of took off for all of us because that's when more fabric houses opened. Um, I mean, Osborne and Little opened pretty much then. Right. And had amazing new things that nobody had ever seen before. I mean, Anthony Little, who was the partner of Peter Osborne, he was doing sort of silver foil wallpapers, which sort of blew everybody away, you know. Of course. I mean, all sorts of things that people yeah. had never seen before. Never seen before. So, so when did people start feeling finally sort of more expansive and coming out of that World War II holding back and, and buying the second and, and third and fourth home in the case of some I of I would clients? think the sort of 60s, 70s, okay. that sort of thing, yeah. Okay. Because that was sort of Carnaby Street and all that was happening and... Um, fashion was exploding and Mary Quant and all of that sort of thing and then it all you know it all went on then everybody suddenly was doing new houses and there was a feeling of you know financially it was all better and the right. whole thing was sort of sorting out and and when did you start to explore the world of of licensing so you've 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 had this very long term partnership with Osborne and Little for example uh, almost 30 years I yeah guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when did when did that start to become another track in your design career? Well, actually, I started um, I started wanting to use fabrics, and then finding that they were discontinued. Now, this did not occur to me that it maybe nobody liked it. <laughs> I just thought it was inconvenient for me, and so I decided to print my own fabrics, and I that started to go rather well. Got it. Okay. But the point was, I was a sole trader, so. I did, uh, I mean, to, in simplistic terms, I produced a few fabrics. I had four colorways. I had, everybody wanted the green, and I had miles of yellow. <laughs> so I had to go and get more green, and then I had to go to the bank. So I wore heart-shaped glasses and seduced the bank manager and borrowed Is that more how more that money. whole thing got started? <laughs> Is that how the heart-shaped glasses got started, to seduce the bank manager? Okay, good to know. And, uh, so, um, so then um, I suddenly realized that it was... You know, it was quite, it was sort of growing too fast, which was a nice problem in a way. Right. And that's when I had a, a, a business partner who'd actually come to me from Colfax and Fowler, and he went to Osborne and Little and said, Look, we would like to expand our fabrics. Can we have some space in mm. your storage places? And can you help us out? And that's when they said, Look, we would like to license Nina, and we would like her to do a range. And literally, from the financial terms, I think we were doing 
pound turnover a year, which actually on your own in a small shop with not knowing what you're doing wasn't too bad. And <laughs> no, suddenly, I think that's quite impressive. And suddenly they went to sort of with that, they went suddenly in one year, they went up to two million turnover. So, I mean, it was a huge step. Right. And we've been together pretty much ever since. I mean, we have been together ever since. It's longer than most marriages. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Well, so that's been a tremendous partnership for you. You've, you've, got an, an online presence t today, sort of yeah. Nina Campbell Limited. I mean, seems uh, from the outside, at least, like a vast empire. I mean, I tell, us about, tell us about all these different products and things that you've, that well, you've put we, together. Well, we now do our own furniture line, which we sell from Chelsea Harbour. We represent in London, which is rather fun, a company who's from America called Oomph. Mm, right. Um, and Great. that was sort of concocted over too many rum-dums in in Nassau, we took the girls from there. We decided it would be lovely to be together. And actually it is, because they, it literally is, everyone needs a bit of oomph in their life. And it's such fun, the oomph furniture. And it's a nice balance with ours. Um, and we're launching in March another, another piece for them. Oh, so that's, that's kind of fun. Right. And then we've just made a relationship with Summit Furniture, the outdoor people, to make outdoor fabrics which I've always wanted to do because I sort of feel quite strongly about outdoor fabrics. And so we've done a range which, which embraces rooftops in London, gardens in England, Miami, Caribbean sort of right. fresher colors. We do corals and aquamarines. And, and so I think we've sort of got our base completely covered. So. Well, so tell me what you mean that you feel quite strongly about outdoor fabrics, because it's, it's definitely a rapidly growing, growing market, and, and people are bringing a lot of outdoor fabrics in. in well, that's, that was really the interesting thing for me, because um, they're now called endurance fabrics, mm. and of course, I've got grandchildren, so I need endurance fabrics practically entirely <laughs> throughout my entire right. house. But um, they, in the first instance of outdoor fabrics, they were quite uncomfortable to sit on, mm. but they've been so... Um, much improved right and i learned quite a lot about how they're how they're done and um so i mean sunbrella weave all of ours um and and they just know exactly what they're doing so it's, they have a really soft handle which i like so therefore if you have them in your kitchen in your family room you don't sort of think oh what am i sitting on you know you're very right. comfortable yeah yeah no the, it, it's come a long way from mm. that from that yeah. from that perspective uh, and as you say, people are uh, grandchildren, pets. You have, you have both grandchildren and pets. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. So My pet, incidentally, sits on the finest velvets. <laughs> so so no, no outdoor fabrics for your, for, your, for your pet. It's interesting that so many of the markets have evolved since you yes. began, began oh, working. And, yeah. and, and you and I were talking earlier about how uh, the internet has sort of dramatically changed even clients at, at, at the level of client that, that you work with uh, have more access to information and, and product and, and tell me how you're juggling that as a, as a designer. Well I think the internet can be hugely useful and I think it can also be hugely complicated for the designers because you will present something to your client and it'll be you've probably found it you've probably had it designed in a certain way they will go on the internet and they'll say, oh, but I found one in wherever, and it's half the price. And it's hard. When they see a picture on the internet, they don't realize that there's a world of difference between the two things. And so you have to sort of balance that and try and educate them. And that, I think, is going to go on being an ongoing problem, actually. But I think that I was doing this house in Maine, a huge 
sort of property. It was a big main house, and then there was um, a, a pool house and a, what we called a party house. And so lots going on at the same time. And of course, a six-hour time difference between me and my client. And she was very visual, and she would go on not so much internet, fun enough, but Instagram. And she'd see some china, and she'd say, what do you think? I love this. Can we use it? I'd say, yes, no, whatever. And so we were able to have an ongoing conversation at all hours of the day and night, really, yeah. proposing all sorts of different things. So that makes working abroad much easier mm. because you don't really have a problem. And the other thing that is, has changed, I think, is I can go to an antique show, I can take a photograph of something, or I can go to the design center and take a photograph, send it to the client, do you like it, don't you like it, this is it, what do you think? And it's instant coming back. Whereas in the old days, you had to take the photograph, send it on a fax, if that, at best, or ring that, you know, it right. was a much lengthier prog program. So, so that's sort of the positive side positive, of it. There are all yeah. sorts of yeah. efficiencies and, and so... Well, let's face it, with everything, there's always a, a, a negative and a positive, isn't there? Right. And you just have to push the positive and... Right, and, and rein in your clients as best you can. Yes. Yes, yes. And, and let's talk about that for a moment too, because you and I were talking about how back in the day it was all business with a handshake mm. and, you know, so-and-so knew your cousin and, and you worked together. But, but these days it's much more contractual and, and, uh, and tell me how that's changed for your, for your business. Well, I think everybody that works for me has been through design school, not the sort of one I went to, but a sort of proper one. <laughs> And, and they learn, luckily, um, all about the estimates and all of those things and CAD. And there's so many things that have just advanced. I mean, again, going back to the drawings, I mean, it, we used to have to redraw everything, which, of course, took ages and was very expensive. Now you get on CAD and you can get the whole thing done within, um, I don't know, an afternoon. That also has its problems because expectations of people, they send you an, an email and they expect an answer I mean, an hour later, or they send you another one saying, did you get the email, you know? I think the drawings and the, and the contracts are really very important because now a lot of your clients are going to have 24 hours a day. Right, And right. so if you were in the right, they could destroy you anyway. It would cost you far too much money to fight any sort of case. So I think you have to have everything absolutely crystal clear. And it wasn't that it wasn't crystal clear then. It was just that you didn't think... I mean, some of the things that people dream up now as a reason not to pay the bill is just you think, oh, okay. Well, I never thought that, of well, that. Well, and that's sort of the big challenge, right? Yeah. Is they're all trying to find a way not yeah. to sort of pay the bill. Pay the at final the end. bill, yes, yes, exactly. Yes. And so how do you go about protecting yourself in that case? And you've got clients that are on a very elevated level and, as you say, have teams of lawyers, and yet even they want to somehow get out they of want to, yeah, they want to, the they last want, bit of obligations. They want a discount. So, think, so what well, do you do? Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you create a contract that's sort of airtight? Well, I think it's very difficult, and I think it changes all the time, and I think it's one of the most onerous things we have to do. I mean, I, th I did a house in China for the most wonderful man, and this was quite a long time ago, and it was a four million pound contract just to do the house, which was a lot of money yeah. then. Yes, even Still now. A, a lot of money yeah. now. Yes. And literally we shook hands, and then his secretary rang the next day and said, would it be possible to make it a little bit under? Because somehow from between night and day something had gone wrong in the business. And I said, yes, of course. And he then rang and said, take no notice of my secretary. We shook hands at four million, and that's what it'll be. And I said, don't worry, I, you know. Yes, we'll let's see. do and, more business and, and with him. we came in at three and a half, which was okay. 
just I thought the right thing to do. Right, right. But it okay. was so pleasant, really. Yes. Um, it, to deal in that way. Yes. And that's the way we try and operate, and I think we're fair. And I think it's so nice if you can give your best. If everything you do, you think, ooh, you know, I'll have to yeah. recon I'll have to redo the estimate because I've spent another, I don't know, thousand dollars on a sofa or something. You you start to get rather edgy, and you start it. It takes the joy out of it. And I think, I, I suppose I'm really lucky because actually. I haven't had those problems. And I think I just maybe imbue people with the realization that actually it needs to be a joyous thing to have a new house. And it's not a drama. Right. You just want to enjoy the moment. And that what I always do say to clients is, when I've finished your house, which is not the end of the road, because we then want to go off and you know, do other things, maybe buy art. And, but give a party, spill the red wine, clean the carpet, and get over it and enjoy the house. Break the place in. Break, exactly. Right, right. So, as, as you've become uh, much more elevated over the years and, and are sort of this, this household name in the design world, right, do people have a... How do they approach you about coming to, to work for them? I mean, how do they even feel confident that they can have someone of your caliber come and, and work on their, on their home? Well, I'd hate to think that they were, there are thousands of people out there who are, who are longing to have me and they feel they can't. Yes, they're, they're holding back. They want to, but they think, uh, I couldn't possibly but, hire Nina Campbell. I mean... But fun enough, there's an, a, a really adorable girl that I'm working for at the moment. She's a Jordanian princess, and she came into my a shop. A Jordanian princess. You see, that And I mean, go. when I, I mean, heard who that's it what was, I'm about. I just said, she said, oh, I was so worried that you might not take me on. I said, for heaven's sake, I mean, I, it's a dream to come and work in Jordan. And we've been working. I did her house, and, um, and actually we're going... Right. You're going over there shortly, right? Yeah. Yes. And, um, You're being called back. And we're called back because um, she wants more done, which is, yes. which is love. The children have grown, and they all need their own apartments. I and love What that. is wonderful about working abroad is, and when I say abroad, I don't just mean in Europe. When you go to the Middle East, and you go to China, and you go to all these sort of different countries, is learning their customs. Mm. And so when I talk to young designers who want to know, you know, what to do, I say the most important thing you can do is listen to the client. It's not your house. You are editing their dreams and making it their house. And in my book, my publisher said to me, but none of it looks the same. So I said, well, how could it look the same? We've got a box at Ascot for Sheikh Hamad of Qatar who wants to entertain his friends during the race week. We've yes. got a house in Gloucestershire for a sweet young couple and their three children who want to b bounce on the furniture. We've got a house in Rome for an Italian and another one in England. We've got a, a Saudi prince's London house. And how could they ever look the same? Because these people are not the same. Their customs are not the same. You just have to listen. And by listening, you learn. And there's, you know... I'm sort of virtually what somebody explained, a waitress at the Last Supper. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you get older, you, all you've got to do is learn more because it just extends your knowledge and the fun of doing things. Well, and, and you seem to still be having so much fun and you've got this wildly busy travel schedule. So what, what is it that's driving you at this point in your career to, to keep as, as active as you, as you are? I think enthusiasm. Okay. Energy, thank God, I've got. Yes. Um, I have a wonderful team who make things happen. And I have wonderful clients who believe in me and just... Um, and, and I think they've all become 
friends, really. We're, you know, I, I think I'm, when I'm in New York, I'm seeing a client who we finished a house for, and he was quite concerned about the budget at the beginning. And then he said, OK, now you're not going to leave me, are you? So I said, well, no, not really. We've finished the house. You can entertain. And, he, and we've spent the last five years buying wonderful objects. And I've introduced him to different dealers who I think he'll enjoy. And right. huge friendships have been made through that. Well, and that seems a lot of it, too, for you, is that they don't want you to leave them, right? They all... They, right? I mean, this they all want to man had another... High, he just let me do up the house in the country, which is completely unnecessary, just to sort of keep going. Yes, well, that was the thing. He sort of leveled his house just so that he could... Carry right? on. I mean... Yeah, so you've brought some of your own family into the, into the business over yeah. the years. So, so talk to me about that. So Max is a very important part of the business, and, and tell us about Well, Max, Max um, my daughter came into the business, my elder daughter, Rita, who is now a decorator and designer on her own. She writes in House and Garden, and she and had a special domino, and she's wonderful, yeah, she's and she's just done that really lovely fantastic. hotel in uh, um, L.A. Yeah. So she came in and, and then went on her own, um, which is what she needed to do. And then Max came in and said, Mommy, I'm, I'm really upset you haven't asked me into the business. I said, I wouldn't have dared. I thought that you'd be <laughs> insulted, come into a sort of fluffy female business. But anyway, <laughs> he absolutely loves it. And he's very good. He, he deals with the business side. He's always been a team player. I mean, at school, he was in every team. And mm. So he's not single-minded. He, he embraces everybody, which is a really important sort of second string, you know. Right. I mean, he was brought up with a mother a wonderful nanny and two sisters. So he's learned to negotiate rather cleverly. <laughs> Whereas I was an only child. It's a completely different mentality. And then my younger daughter, Alice, has come in, who's the sort of always been the diplomat of the family. She's mm. always the one that rings and tells you somebody's birthday and you have to do this and blah, blah, blah. And the most important, when I'm talking to the rest of my children, zip it, mum. You know, if I have an opinion that she feels should be kept to myself. And so... Um, and she is with me as well. So I enjoy having my family with me all the time. Yes, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a gift. And, yeah. and many family businesses sort of struggle with, with that. And, and as you say, often there are uh, children who don't want anything to do with the family business. But how great that they all wanted to be I think, be funny enough, it's, I've seen businesses where, I mean, there's a hotel I did in London called The, the Capital. And it was interesting because it was started by this, the, the owner. Mm. And then he and his son didn't see eye to eye on the business, but his younger daughter and he did. So I think sometimes a man and his daughter or a woman and her son have a better way of moving forward. Although, you know, that's it, not always the case. But I think what I want to do with my business now is go more into expansion of things that don't necessarily need the interior design side in case I want to maybe not spend my entire life at the airport. Right, okay. So, so that, tell me about how you see the, the business evolving for you then, if you want to sort of step away from perhaps the interior design side a little bit, a little bit more. What does the business become? I think it becomes a sort of brand with our... Obviously, the fabrics will go on. I think the furniture will go on. I'd right. like to do more. I mean, we have this wonderful relationship with Steinmart at a different end. We're doing bedding for them, which right. I enjoy... Because it's really rather nice to be able to produce something at a really affordable price. Mm. So we reach a much larger audience. And, of course, they have 260 stores. So right. even if you buy one for each store, it's more than I could possibly buy for my store. And so that's really been great fun. And it's opened a whole new world. And we're going to be working with One King's Lane shortly 
um, doing some product for them. So I, really, I think that okay. um, fantastic. Um, you know, I think we're going to move on in that direction. So, so become m- more more of a brand, and, yeah. and and so maybe you can be at home a little bit more often. I heard that you've never even seen the magnolia tree actually in in, blo- in blossom, right? That's in, true. In front of your own home, you've never actually been home to but, see your magnolia. But tree I do bloom. think somehow all these things that I say, I think I'll still be giving instructions and trimming cushions from my coffin as they put the lid on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> No, we no, want no. color. Pipe it. So, for those who are thinking about licensing deals and, and those who can learn from what you have gone through, what are some of the things that you learned along the way that, that you would do differently now if, if you were doing them over? I think it's very different now because I think that the li- I mean, there were many fewer of us licensing. I think, fun enough, when I did my um, licensing deal with Osborne and Little, I mean, everyone said, oh my God, this is amazing. And there wasn't that going on. And now right. everybody has a licensing arrangement. I've had a very long-term licensing arrangement with Osborne and Little. It's, as you say, it's 30 years. Quite a lot of people now go in and they do one collection for a company. Right. Um, I think you want, you, you need somebody to help you. I mean, I just did it myself. I think you need a licensing agent now. I mm. mean, everybody's an agent, everybody's got a publicist and all of that. I think it's fine. I think you can some, sometimes find you are the tail wagging the dog or whatever that, I'm sure I've got that expression wrong, but <laughs> no, something like right. that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you can end up with too many advisors and I'm a bit wary of all of that. Yeah. But I think you do need help. And I think if you've got a mind that's um, sort of artistic, you definitely need a mind that is more down-to-earth and, and business-like to partner with. Yes, yes. You need someone who can look out yeah. for all, those, all yeah. those details. And as you say, you've been extremely fortunate with your long-term partnership with Osborne and Little, yeah. and, and they've ended up being great partners. Um, because we're, we're doing a live show, we're actually going to open it up uh, for audience questions, and we're happy to let you ask something of Nina. Yes? Yes. Process for designing your fabric. Well, it's a sort of mix. I have a wonderful girl in my studio. In fact, I have two. One is a weave specialist and one is more of a print specialist and came much more to me from a product. But I'm just influenced by all sorts of things. I travel a lot, not necessarily only doing up um, houses, but I've been in India quite a lot. I go and always, wherever I am, I'll go to a textile place and look for antique textiles and see what I can pull from that. And um, I mean, there's one in our collection at the moment which started its life as a rather smelly actually, it was underneath a camel's saddle. So it had to come to England in its own plastic bag because it was <laughs> Yes. And it went through I quite a lot imagine. of cleaning processes before I dared take it into the studio. But it gave me the inspiration for one of my designs and that sort of thing goes on and I'll buy a textiles, I'll go to museums, I'll look through all sorts of things that just inspire. I mean, you might find inspiration on the side of a, you know, the, how the how the tiles form on the side of a building. Um, I don't know, you just have to keep your eyes open. It's not sort of, does, doesn't happen. But it is rather odd, I found, that sometimes, you know, you'll think you've invented it, you're never going to invent a color scheme, but you think, you feel the need for a certain color. You feel, I really would like, I mean, in my, this latest collection, I sort of suddenly wanted to mix that, a really good pink, not sugary, but a good, pink with gray, like that old Dior gray. And suddenly you start bringing in these colors. And then you find that other people are having that same 
feeling as well. So somewhere in the ether, we all start to go through a, a feeling. And then now there's this Dior show going on in London, which is just can't wait to get back for that. But Pantone say orange is the color of the air. I think that's the moment to take a bit of care. So every, we don't all turn out looking like an Hermes box. To, to your point that you were making earlier, you can see how different all of your projects really, really yeah. are because they're, they're about where they're physically located and who the clients were that That's you... That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have that sort of signature Nina Campbell look because there, there isn't really a signature. Well, funny enough, the house I'm going up to see in, um, in New York next week is 28 years old. I mean, we did it 28 years ago. And of course, and that was, you know, in the height of sort of, in a way, slightly over-decorating, although um, my client said, I don't want any, he opened by saying, I don't want any of this past Monterey. So I said, fine, <laughs> you don't need it. But then by the end, he was saying, why don't I have any fringes? And I said, well, you didn't want any, but yes. don't worry, we can trim anything you like. <laughs> but um, now, then they thought they'd move and downsize. And then they rang me up and said, listen, we love our house will you come and redo it? I think it's time. I said, it could be, because that child you married off last September hadn't been born when we started the house. So that's quite a long run, <laughs> one form of decoration. And now we're making it a bit more contemporary. Right, right. Yes. Uh, Nina, what is your take on uh, the resurgence sort of, of oriental rugs being used that we thought were never going to come back? And also... Um, antique furniture, which Sotheby's just called a few years ago, brown. Um, and now we're starting to see more of that. What is your take on that? Yes, that brown furniture label really hurt. Well, I got, I, I've always, I mean, I've, I, I just think that talking about furniture as brown is so stupid. I'm, I'm happy you said antique, because actually wood is brown. So if you're going to have anything you can sit on, it's going to have to be brown somewhere. But I, I just... I hate that sweeping statement of saying, oh, you don't want any brown furniture, i.e. antiques, because one wonderful piece of antique furniture in a room just makes it, and everybody, everyone's nodding, so I, I must be preaching to the converted. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, the choir's all around you here. <laughs> so, um, and I think that it's just beautiful. I, in one of these houses that I did, um, it's, there's a pink drawing room will come up quite soon, there was a sweet young girl, and she had been sort of, Slightly, they, when they first got married, they went and bought some very contemporary pieces. Sort of, there's a cabinet with a formica front and all that. And she said, "We've only got three pieces of furniture really that's worth using. One of them was this formica piece, which actually we haven't managed to use yet. Not because I'm being difficult, because every time I suggest it somewhere, she says, it 'Doesn't look right, does it really?'" And I said, "No, it really no. doesn't." But we went to an antique show in Battersea, which is a very good one for. Not, I'm not talking about museum furniture, I'm talking about livable, buyable furniture. And there was a center table, and it was two and a half thousand pounds. And I said to her, I want you to look at that table. It's got a beautiful colored wood. It's perfect. It's not expensive, and I can get it cheaper anyway. We will now go to the design center, and we will look at all that stuff that's come in from Indonesia, and it's up to you. I'm not to suggest, I mean, just put it in your head. So we walked a few more stands, and she said, you know, that table was really beautiful, wasn't it? And I said, yes, look, the wood was fabulous. So we went and bought it, and then she got it into her head that actually we then bought a pair of side tables for the drawing room. So the, with the lighter colors that we're using in the house, and in that case, we then actually bought a Swedish rug, um, which is perfect, a bit more contemporary than an Oriental for her. 
and sudden, and she's absolutely thrilled, and she's got a piece of furniture that actually will retain its value, if not increase mm. in value, instead of something that honestly could be put in the fireplace because it's not worth anything. And I think it is coming back, but it needs to be thought about, and I think you need to tell your clients, look at this and look at that. What do you think? What do you think of, you know, it's here, it's like cooking, you know, it's feeling it. And then I think oriental rugs in the right place. I mean, by the end, they were oriental on oriental on oriental. It was a little bit over the top. But if you have a, a wooden floor or maybe a, what we call coconut matting, rush matting, and you lay an oriental on it and you decorate less fussily around, I think they're beautiful, the colors. And I think it's all about also the, the, the scale. Um, some of them are too fussy. Uh, and then, of course, when you work, I mean, of course, working in the Middle East, you, it's their background. So they have them and they treat them differently. And, you, and they lay them on marble floors and you're rather grateful to have something soft and warm to tread <laughs> something on. Something warm so. to tread upon. Exactly. Yes. And the colors that they give are wonderful, you know. Yeah. Well, it's a remarkable career that you've had and I'm so delighted that you could come and talk with us and uh, you have a huge fan base everywhere you go so I know that everyone here is, is delighted that they get to see you in person. So thank you for this and a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Dennis. It's yeah. been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.